0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives.
2: I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better.
3: I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show Because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at
4: HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit MOFAD.org.
0: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, if you like it, and please reach out if you have any questions for me. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is produced by Heritage Radio Network. We are a nonprofit, member-supported radio station that's devoted to all things food. Please help us keep HRN alive and become a member today. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart there to donate. Uh, and please do it, because if you don't, we might not have air conditioning next week. Uh, today is episode number 43 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by Adele Lou Turner and Adrian Stair. Adele is a doula um, and is expecting her first child in September. And Adrian is a mom of two and owns Wild Was Mama. She has two stores, one in Greenpoint and one in Park Slope. Thank you for joining me. So um, today's show is going to be about um, pregnancy, food, cravings, mom, uh, and we, we are going to touch on a little bit later um, eating placenta. So, to warn <laughs> listeners, if that's something that totally grosses you out, you can tune out now and you can catch us next week. But uh, I wanted to—I uh, invited Adrian and Adele on the show because I think it's a—it's a topic that um, gets covered. I think if you. Uh, are the kind of person who starts to talk about things like home birth when you are pregnant. We talked about it a lot when uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first child. Um, but I find that when I sort of have brought it up around other people, people talk about crazy things to eat. There are television shows about crazy things to eat. Um, I feel like it's a subject that a lot of people kind of either shy away from or don't know anything about and don't really know that it's out there. So thank you guys for, for joining me. Um, I guess uh, I would love for each of you to introduce yourselves um, and just say a little bit about sort of who you are and and what you do um so adrian will you tell us about wild was mama
2: yeah um so i'm a mom of two i have my first son is seven years old my little guy is three and a half not so little um and we opened a store which used to be called caribou baby now it's called wild was mama and we are um for all things considered a, a Pregnancy, maternity, and baby store Um, We have a big class space in the back Of one of our stores and um, We are here to support Mom to do whatever it is that she Wants to do. Um, We sell a lot Of organic and natural products In the store and we help people learn how to wear Their babies and carriers and teach tons of Classes related to that. That's sort of our specialty Um, In addition to that we will help you With um, anything you need even if it's Just a place to sit and nurse your baby or if it's To get a nursing bra or take a class On childbirth ed which is where I met you, Harry. Um, you can do all those things in the community and meet a whole bunch of other parents, um, and normalize your experience adjusting to motherhood.
3: I definitely will say that that uh, you know that experience um, when when Taylor, my wife, was pregnant with our first child, Moxie, who's the same age as your son Damien, um, having that experience of having a group of people who were all going through the same thing at the same time. And you know, it's a very intense experience of preparing to be a mom, preparing to be a dad, um, and sort of figuring out what that's about. Um, as a dad, I definitely think that you know having a store like Wild Was Mama is not just a resource for moms. I think it is a really great resource for dads too. Absolutely. Um, and you know, as as someone who has used that resource, it's you know it's really valuable as a dad to walk into a space. You know, there's a you know, and and I'm not you know obviously the mom does the lion's share of the work, but as a dad, I feel like you know your job is to is to take care of the mom, but we don't always know what that is or what mom, what mom needs or what those things are. And so I think that, you know, it's important to note that, that Wild Was Mama is a place where dads can also get a lot of information that they need.
2: Totally. It's, you know, parenting has no gender and we have tons of families in our store of all different arrangements. Um, and certainly most of the products that we're carrying are for, you know, a woman's body, um, and for boobs and vaginas and the prep and the healing for those but all the education the support the like we are there as a resource um for whatever questions one has and that doesn't matter whether you have boobs or not um so maybe the retail portion of our store is a little bit more geared towards mom but you're right it is totally for families and it's always been that way um and we welcome everyone in
3: um and adele will you talk about uh talk about what you do, about what, what being a doula is about.
1: Absolutely. Um, I came to being a doula through my prenatal and postpartum yoga practice. And it seemed like the missing link for me, because I was working with women beforehand, first, in prenatal since 2006. And then they would all graduate, right? They'd give birth, and I wouldn't see them. And I said, well, I want to see them again. So then I became a postpartum yoga teacher. And um, my postpartum focuses on baby and me. So they come with the baby. Um, And I say baby and me because I also like to include fathers in that. I usually get the mothers in class, and definitely a lot of that class centers around postpartum recovery, pelvic floor. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, fathers get a lot out of it, especially these days because I work a lot with infant developmental movement. Hmm. So we're recognizing that the mother, the father, and the infant are all a unit in the class together. They're all people who are having the experience together. Um, And then after I did those trainings, I wanted to put the pieces together and get into the labor part. And teaching prenatal yoga made me want more education around labor in general, because I felt like I was talking about it. A lot of the yoga is preparing for birth and um, not having had a child myself yet until a month or so from now. um, I wanted to be able to experience birth from a more experienced place. So, I became a doula kind of as a research project for my teaching at first. And I started on the slow track around 2000, I think it was 2008. And in the last three years, I've picked up my practice. I do 10 or so births a year. Um, I work independently. I work with a lot of my students. Hmm. But I also work through a collective that is based in Williamsburg called Carriage House Birth.
3: Right.
2: Love Carriage House, by the way. Awesome collective.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. So um, as far as, as being, a, being a doula, um, you know, so you, you have experience both sort of pre um, with your own pregnancy and then being a doula and then post, and I want to talk a little bit about food and how food relates. I feel like that's something, you know, certainly in, in popular culture, there's lots of jokes, right? About, um, you know, oh, you know, she's pregnant, she wants pickles and ice cream mixed together, and there's all these sort of weird food cravings that happen. Um, have you had any with your, with your pregnancy?
1: I was really disappointed with my food cravings because my first trimester, my one thing was I couldn't stand pickles. And I am a fermenter. I love pickles, usually. And (laughs) I really felt cheated out of my pickling experience. I wanted it to be like a more fulfilling pickling experience than ever. And instead, like pickles, bleh. Kombucha, bleh.
3: And that changed after the first trimester? After
1: the first trimester, it wasn't so bad. And it was funny because I didn't get morning sickness or anything. It wasn't that things made me nauseous. I just... The taste Pickles made me want to hurl. <laughs> um, I'd say my biggest craving pregnancy is yogurt or just dairy. I guess I'm growing little bones in there, Sure. and um, I feel like often we do crave what we need Absolutely. if we really yeah. are in tune with our bodies. So, sure. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, that I think that's a, I think that's a really good point, and and that you know the body does know right mm-hmm. what what it needs to accomplish whatever it's doing, whether it's fighting a cold or whether it's growing a, growing another human. Um, I know that when Taylor was pregnant with Moxie, if she had been a boy, she would have been named Reuben because Taylor wanted to eat nothing but Reuben sandwiches. So like, that was it. <laughs> and Reuben was a, was actually a really good option because the meat is cooked. So there weren't any of the listeria problems that you might, you know, you should sort of stay away from deli meat, um, you know, cold deli meat when you're pregnant. But what about you, Adrienne?
2: Um Definitely... Dairy was so big. I mean, for during pregnancy and then especially during nursing, like pints of ice cream every single night. Um, perhaps I was just that's like the sleep deprivation that hit, um, sure. and it was just like the sugar that I was right. craving. But definitely a lot of dairy cravings. Um, in the first trimester, I had you know a lot of nausea and morning sickness in the first trimester, and then a little bit beyond, I just all white food. Anything that was white, I could eat, and that was it. So like nothing except like bagels, cream cheese bread that was about it if I had color it was sort of gross to me um, but then I I was um, definitely hungry for meat later in my first pregnancy um, and then it became you know I mean I think the season plays a part too uh, my Damien my first was a summer pregnancy had him in July the second was born on Christmas um, and the first and we'll, I, maybe we'll talk a little bit about this but the first one was like freezing cold beer um, in the middle of the summer and the second one was red wine and um, I don't know. I think seasonality plays a part of it too, and the heat and the temperature and what's going on. And every pregnancy is so different. But definitely going to identify with the dairy, the sugar, um, and meat for sure.
3: Yeah. So you brought up alcohol. Um, So let's talk a little bit about alcohol and pregnancy. I think that, um, you know, certainly something that was, you know, vilified for a long time Um, my mom used to joke that when she went into labor with me and called her doctor she was at a cocktail party and the first thing he said to her was just have a glass of wine it'll slow down the contractions
2: totally my midwife told me that too actually
3: (laughs) so you know but it it certainly at least uh, anecdotally knowing other people that recently have been pregnant um, you know seems like it's less evil than it used to be. And I certainly know people in their third trimesters who do have a glass of wine here and there or half a glass of wine here and there. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I drank in both pregnancies, not excessively, obviously. Um, I didn't really much have a taste for alcohol in my first pregnancy t- till I got into my third trimester, in which case, you know, I could like spot out a cold Corona from across the room. Right. And you, and you mentioned it was the um, summer and I remember oh. that summer was really hot. Yeah. Um, and I could definitely like put back one of those really quickly, but I didn't really have a taste for alcohol. I certainly, I I think one time I accidentally had the feeling of being buzzed. Um, I drank a, um, some sort of margarita, um, too quickly. And, um, it felt like awful. (laughs) I was like, Oh no, I'm killing my baby. (laughs) Um, but with the second I sort of drank consistently throughout the pregnancy, just a glass of red wine here, there. That's all I really wanted. um, I, you know, I, I just don't care what people think. No one ever said anything to me about it. I think that you're right. It's like less vilified. Um, it's definitely more common in my circle of people that I see. Um, either you have a taste for it or you don't, but I don't really see people drinking what seems like too much. Right. Um, I, mean,
3: I don't want to make light of something that yeah, can be a real issue. Right. right? I mean, it, people right. should not be out there doing shots and dancing on the table when they're pregnant.
2: Yeah. Um, But there's a lot of studies out there, you know, how much alcohol is actually making it to your kid. And I'm not really one for, um, you know, uh, food science and research so much. Um, I am more into that now with other things. But um, I basically drank as much as felt right and okay to me and my body. And, um, you know, the body knows what it can take. And I sort of trusted that. And things seemed to work out okay for me. But who's to say for others? What about you, Adele?
1: (laughs) I think that the stigma comes from... Us living in a culture where we don't understand moderation in general. And um, personally, I haven't had much desire for alcohol through my pregnancy. There was, I had a baby shower last weekend and there was white sangria there, and I thought, ooh, that sounds really good. But sangria is also one of those things that you're weighing over your head before you know it. <laughs> so, <Yeah.
2: laughs>
1: so I actually steered away from the sangria. Um, my one glass was I had a glass of champagne at my wedding. I got married shortly after I was pregnant so um and actually my my uh stepmother was watching to see if i was going to drink because they were all suspicious that i was pregnant and we weren't telling them yet Um, and uh, i picked up that glass and both my stepmother and mother-in-law were like oh (laughs) so then when did you so when did you tell them i fooled them a while later (laughs) i wanted to wait till like that 14 15 week like for the first checkup and everything before i yeah
3: before I came out, that's funny, but they were sure. Yeah, Already, they
1: yeah, they saw that, that it. one sip. They were like, "Oh, she's not pregnant." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. So I can see where it's such a generational thing that it's more yeah. acceptable now. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. That's always the dead giveaway when you like um, pass up the alcohol. So it's um, good job.
3: So, so let's move. So now, you know, so we've talked about sort of, sort of drinking during and food during pregnancy. So now I want to talk a little bit about birth and sort of and post post birth. Um, Adele, you obviously spend a lot of time with people in labor uh, as, as part of what you do. Yes. And I have, I have very little memory of, of Taylor being in labor the first time. The second time was a, was a, a scheduled C-section, so there was no, no labor. Mm-hmm. Um, are there things that you find that women either want to eat or don't want to eat or do eat or don't eat while they're in labor?
1: Um, acidic things are awful,
3: mm. right? Because
1: generally there's some nausea and just like, bleh, anyway. I usually steer people towards easy to eat finger food things like saltines, actually banana yogurt. um, Because
3: I mean, you could hard-boiled
1: eggs are great. You could need energy.
3: I mean, you know, when Taylor was, I mean, the first time, you know, she was in labor on and off for like almost a week before we went to the hospital. You know, and and it ended up being a C-section because the baby was stuck. But I think that's. You know, people, you know, think about labor and may not think about the fact that this could go on for hours. This could be a day or two. So you do have to think about things like eating, even though you're going through all these other physical
1: changes. Absolutely. And the further along you get in labor, the less you want to eat. So the first thing I mm. tell people when they call me on the phone and say, I think I'm in labor is, when did you last eat? What have you right. eaten lately? Have something now because you're not going to want it as much later. Yeah. Like, do it now. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, you know, if you can down some chicken soup, great. I've had some women who, like, we have a bowl of chicken soup before we go to the hospital.
2: Yeah.
1: Or uh, I had one mom in labor; she was eating all day. I was like a baked potato, some soup, <laughs> <laughs> bowl of cereal, yeah, avocado toast, apple in the car. Yeah. Um. But it, yeah, it really depends on um, the stomach factor. I think of that sure. particular. Everyone's so different.
3: Right. Um, Adrian, did you find at all? Um postpartum that your, did your relationship to food change? Were there foods that you either couldn't eat during pregnancy or, you know, or, or things that you then didn't want to eat after you gave birth?
2: No, I would say that nothing really changed. I mean, my eating habits now later have changed. I eat probably like a 95% plant-based only diet, Um, with very little meat or other animal products, but that's not, I don't think that came from birth or pregnancy. I was on like a hardcore ice cream and coffee diet for like at least a year after each one of my kids. Um,
3: I mean, you mentioned the sleep deprivation, so that's a real, yeah.
2: And the quantity definitely came down of like what I could consume. Sure. Um, but I think kids have changed. Like raising kids have changed my relationship with food. The little guys don't like meat, or didn't, or weren't, so we were inspired to like eat differently, and it sort of stuck. But the actual pregnancy itself, and like immediately after postpartum, I don't think changed anything for me. Is that disappointing?
3: <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors, and uh, and when we come back, I want to touch on uh, something you just mentioned, Adrian, about how kids change your relationship to food.
4: This is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the museum of food and drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at MOFAD.org.
3: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom and today I'm speaking with Adrian Stare and Adele Lou Turner about mothering childbirth food. Uh, so before the break, we were, uh, we'd sort of made our way up through birth and eating uh, into sort of post, uh, you know, postpartum and, and food. Um, Adrian, do you remember what the first meal was you had after each of your children were born?
2: Yes. Well, certainly with, yes, I do. Um, Damien was born at home. So we had made, like, the tastiest lasagna ever. I have, like, the greatest recipe that I basically, like, forced my friend to give me. It's from her grandma. And we had that all cooked and ready to go and frozen in the freezer. And it was sort of this, like, idyllic postpartum experience. You have your baby. They they don't leave your body. My midwife and doula, like, cleaned up all the birth tub, put stuff in the laundry, heated up that lasagna, and it was, like an hour later like sit in front of me and it was like the tastiest thing I ever had. Um with Lauren, he we transferred to the hospital. So he was like ninety five percent born at home and then came out in the hospital. Um and the hospital food experience was like I had to like sweet talk nurses into like maybe giving me a sandwich that was left over because he was born so late at night. So they didn't even have food until and I had just labored my ass off There was no way. And it was like, you know, some terrible sandwich, but I just devoured like whatever they gave me. Basically any food that was put in front of me in the hospital, I ate regardless of what it was. And I was like, so disappointed with it. When
3: I, when I was born, I was born at uh, Mount Sinai. Was that born point? Yes. I was born at Mount Sinai. Trying to remember which kids who was born where Uh, (laughs) I was born at Mount Sinai and my father brought my mother, uh, sandwich from Katz's mm. as the first thing that she had after after I was born and so that has become sort of a family tradition oh nice so after each of our children was born Taylor's gotten the sandwich from Katz's
2: <laughs> the Reuben
3: yeah exactly all right um, Adele do you have anything that you're looking that you're hoping to <laughs> you're looking um, forward to having
1: I'll say what I gravitate towards feeding people because um, usually even late at night you can find something that's open around the hospital and I've done mostly hospital births and um If mom's not quite sure, I tell her to eat a bloody burger. (laughs) And usually that's actually often that's what they want. Yeah, sure. I feel like that's the most, yeah, iron. And of course, I've worked with some vegetarian and vegan moms, and they're not going to have a bloody burger. And they usually, you know, if you have a dietary restriction and you're having a hospital birth, it's good to plan ahead because hospital food is... Not very tasty, anyway, and usually not really keen on those restrictions. It's sure, kind of or, or whatever you
3: get with the restriction
2: is going to be even worse.
3: Right?
1: Exactly, yeah. it's kind of sad how our you know health institutions are oh not very healthy in terms of food choices. Yeah.
2: I was so surprised at like how much sugar there was in every meal that was served to me. Like the quantity of refined sugar was like incredible, and it was such a juxtaposition. After you, you know, it's like it's a health institution. And it's yeah. just. Pouring refined foods down your body, I mean they that's talk like about... the last thing that you want after you <laughs> have a baby. You're like, whole foods, whole foods, yeah. whole foods, fresh fruit, fresh fruit, and it's put in front of you, and it's not at all what feels healing yeah. and exactly. like replenishing.
3: I mean, there's some, I, you know, I've read somewhere a huge statistic about doctors and nurses who smoke. Mm. So, like, that I always found to be kind of an interesting mm-hmm. thing. And I get it. I mean, I, you know, I used to be a smoker. Like, I get the stress level of being a doctor and a nurse and all those things. But talking about being in a health place that's supposed to be about. Health, So I think the the bloody burger is a good segue to talking about placenta um, and (laughs) and talking about, you know, talking about about eating it and sort of why you would want to. Um, So I don't know, Adele or or, uh, Adrian, if you want to discuss or, you know, who wants to start about it. I mean, you know, when I first encountered it, um, when we were in home birth class, sort of talking about it, it was something that, you know, was presented as, you know, it's something that animals do. Um, very regularly, um, and as something that was that was good for the mother's body. So I don't know if you can touch on sort of what the what the reasons are. Why why would someone want to do that?
1: And I think it's a very debated subject right now. And I want to put the disclaimer out there right away that whatever I say, it's not supported by substantial medical research at this point. But most herbal medicine is not substantiated by medical research sure. at this point, point. and I think that's an important thing to consider that um, there's not large-scale studies about it. But every woman that I've worked with who has chosen encapsulation has been really thankful for it and has felt some kind of difference. Some of them a little less. They say, I don't know how much it's working. Some of them say, this has saved my life.
3: Sure. And and Um, I would also say that, I mean, like, I guarantee you my mom did not eat the placenta when I, when my brother was born and she was still a great mom and she still was healthy after the birth and everything. You know what I mean? Like it's not, I don't, I don't think it's a make or break, but it's certainly for people who've chosen to do it. Um, people that I've known, it seemed to have been a great thing.
1: And I believe that food is medicine and it's organ meat. Organ meat is one of the most nutrient dense, rich, nourishing things that you can eat. Um, and how great that you don't even have to kill anything to eat that organ,
3: right? <laughs> and, and that it's not going to waste, right? I mean, and it's, it's not going it, to waste it's something that you that has grown inside you with the baby, and is something that was a part of that part of that process, and otherwise it's just getting thrown away.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of the theory behind eating the placenta—it's called placentophagia, if you want to have the more technical term for it—is um, that you know you're you have. This birth, and then you get rid of all this stuff from your body, and you need to replenish, which we know we have to do anyway with some kind of nourishing food. Um, It's very high in blood, so it's very high in iron. It has a lot of hormones that were in your body during pregnancy, which right after birth drop off significantly. Right. So another one of the big claims, and we don't know how much hormone are we actually ingesting. That's the problem. We can't measure that, and I'm sure for everyone's placenta it's different. How do we digest hormones as opposed to them being in our bloodstream? That's a good question. Um, But if you're consuming the placenta in little bits, it's a way of tapering off of that hormone supply instead of just losing all those hormones at once. So that's one of the big arguments for postpartum depression and it helping to counteract Postpartum,
3: and so and so the way that it is often consumed is um, it's put into pills, right? It's dried and then ground up and then encapsulated.
1: Correct. And I'll say, if you go online, you can find lots of different recipes for you know placenta stroganoff or all those things. Um, There's a big ick factor, I think, for a lot of people. Sure. (laughs) In terms of that, and the capsules make it more shelf stable because you've taken the water out. You've brought it up to a temperature where you've killed bacteria that could be a problem so that it's shelf stable and right. then you can stretch that out for a and, while
3: and it seems far more medicinal right in a in a capsule taking a pill most people probably are taking some kind of pill once in a while whether that's advil or whether that's you know an allergy medication or whatever or whatnot and so adding that into your regimen is a lot easier and a little less icky than sitting down with like a knife and a you know knife and a fork and cutting into it
2: It's true. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
3: So, Adrian, you actually brought in a jar of some capsules from the placenta from your second birth.
2: Yep. Couldn't finish them. Um, I also did a lot, like, a variety of things with placenta. At my first birth, you know, we made really great art out of them. Greg, I was laying in bed and watched my husband, Greg, like, make beautiful prints out of them. It was really exciting to see. And then the next day, he straight up filleted it. And I think I filmed it. I think I have, like, a three-part filming series As sort of a how to fillet one's placenta, and you know we got a really sharp knife, and um, we watched how we cut it open and peeled it back and what it looked like, and it was just like so. It was basically like cutting the freshest piece of meat ever, and it doesn't even smell like meat; it smells like blood, like super iron rich. Um, We didn't dehydrate it partially because I'm really lazy. Um, when it comes to like any sort of food prep, like I want like the one bowl meal. I don't want to like get a bunch of stuff dirty. I don't want to like, um, I don't want, I'm not great at taking vitamins. I'm not great at taking pills. I do believe that food is medicine and I'd rather just eat it like turmeric. I'd rather like throw it in a smoothie than take a pill. Um, so for me, I was like, let's just, I'm just going to eat it. Um, and I didn't know how to eat it. I didn't want to cook it. Um, I didn't want to eat it straight. We So I he, um, he basically filleted it and cubed it up into a bunch of pieces. And some of those were frozen. Um, and some of them were tossed into a smoothie. The smoothie was a dairy-based smoothie. And I think that that's not a good mix. Mm. If I could recommend that someone make a placenta smoothie, I would probably recommend something that's like already red, so berries, right? Um, and like some <laughs> coconut water, but I don't think the dairy was a good mix for the blood. Um, sorry if I'm grossing everyone out. But I was just very curious. Um, How did I, it taste? It tasted like a smoothie. There were some chunks in it. Yeah. Um, perhaps our blender wasn't strong enough, but it I, you couldn't really taste it, yeah. and it didn't really gross me out. Um, I can't you know it's not something that you can really measure the effects of on oneself at least for me personally I had an amazing postpartum experience I had like the opposite of depression I had like extreme like highs of elation and like hours of sobbing of joy and like my milk came in really quickly and it was this beautiful thing I don't actually I have no way to measure to what extent the placenta participated in you know in that and how it affected me but you know I'd rather take the chance and eat some food to counter postpartum depression sure. or bring milk in, then struggle with what happens when, you know, your milk doesn't come in well yep. or take other kinds of medicine, which are probably more harmful. You know, I don't, um, I'm not down with that. So for me, I was curious and it was fun. Um, I couldn't finish the placenta. It's so much, so much meat. Um,
3: what is, I mean, I, what is an average placenta weigh?
1: Oh. a little over a pound? Okay yeah i have a friend who said hers was five pounds that's like insane but
2: most people yeah
1: more like a pound or so Got it. <laughs>
2: perhaps like my desire for it tapered off and i just didn't want i just didn't want it more. right like i was hungry for it in the first days and then after that it stopped yeah um so with lauren i knew how much placenta was coming and i didn't want the whole thing cubed again and we were in a hospital <laughs> mind you so i i remember like and I wasn't planning to be in a hospital, so I remember the baby was out and he was nursing, and I was like adamant about keeping the placenta, and I was like telling everyone, like, make sure you get it, and they were going to put it in a brine, and um, I'm like, no, I just want it raw, and um, and they were able to save it for me, and we brought it home.
3: And where, which hospital was that?
2: That was Woodhole, okay. um, in Bed-Stuy, yep. for those of you who are familiar. Um, so they sent that right on home with us. And the next day I had a friend come over, came over and she encapsulated, I wanted to sort of see what the process was. Cause I work with a lot of women who are curious about it. She encapsulated part of it. Um, she made art with like the dried umbilical cord and, uh, she, and she left some raw, some of it we, I ate raw in a smoothie that was non-dairy based. It was very tasty. <laughs> And then another part of it, I actually made a tincture out of, because I love tinctures. I think it's so fun to extract stuff with alcohol. Um, we do it all the time with various things for fun. And um, and so we soaked it in, you know, Polish spiritus, high-proof vodka and it was placenta tincture i don't know to what extent i'm not really very sensitive to foods and medicine my husband it's like he'll eat something and feel very zingy afterward i am not very sensitive to it so i can't eat something and then tell you immediately that it's making me feel a different way so perhaps i'm not a great test subject but i again no postpartum depression and lots of milk so who's to say it was the wrong choice right
3: adele are you planning to eat your placenta
2: i am Yes,
1: um, and I'm planning on doing it myself, because since I do it myself, it's like, why would I have anyone else do that for me? Mm. Um, So the question of whether I'll actually feel up to encapsulating is a good question. Mm. I may go the route also of some smoothie cubes. Smoothie cubes. (laughs) And probably tincturing some of it, and um, we'll see if the capsules happen. I think time will tell, as far as that's concerned. Mm.
3: For sure. And Adele, just so to give information to listeners, in in your experience in New York, are there hospitals that are where it's easier to request that you save your placenta or hospitals that it's harder?
1: Absolutely. Um, as a doula, I've worked a lot at um, St. Luke's Roosevelt, which is now called Mount Sinai West and maybe something else tomorrow. Yeah. But um, they are very easy to get the placenta from, or they have been historically, in my experience. Um, NYU is not too bad either. Um, Generally, you sign a release form, and then you get your placenta. Um, Other hospitals might have a holding policy, like New York Methodist. They want it for 24 hours. Um, Cornell and New York Presbyterian downtown want to hold it for a week. And I've had some clients who really tried to bargain with them, and it was a no-go. And they're looking to keep the placenta in hopes that if there's something wrong with the baby within the first week, they can look at the placenta and make some kind of diagnosis. I see. So because they don't believe in the benefits of encapsulation, they think that there's a lot more benefits to that very small percentage of babies that might benefit from them holding on to it. Sure, and then be able to
3: determine something Mm -hmm. about it. Got it. Well, so I guess the the important piece of information there, then, is that... um, if you, as you are creating your birth plan, if you are thinking about keeping the placenta, um, whether you're going to keep it at home or you're going to transfer it, if you know where you might end up transferring to, as someone who wanted to have a home birth our first time and then ended up transferring very last minute and felt like we had zero information about what to do, um, I will say that, you know, as much information as you can figure out ahead of time is super valuable. And so if that is something that's important to you, try to ask those questions before you're in labor on your way to the hospital.
1: Absolutely, yes. Talk to your doctor, talk to your provider, and and talk to the hospital. Yeah, the midwife, and make sure that you know that ahead of time. And I'd say that for a lot of things surrounding labor in general. Don't let there be any surprises in the labor room.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we're, we're just about out of time. Um, I think there's, there's a lot more things we could we could cover. Um, but I wanted to thank you both for, for coming on the show. If you want to find, uh, find Wild Was Mama, um, you can look at wildwasmama.com. Um, or you can go to, uh, what's your address on Driggs in Greenpoint? Uh,
2: 272 Driggs Avenue in Greenpoint and 464 Bergen, um, right off Fifth Avenue in Park
3: Great. And uh, you can find Adele at embodiedmother.com. And Adele, where do you teach your, your yoga classes?
2: I teach at
1: Abhyasa Yoga Center, which is in Williamsburg. And I also teach at Bend and Bloom Yoga in Park
3: Slope. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tatashore who engineers this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram, at TheFoodBaller. Thanks very much. Talk to you next week.